Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 to 20. Oh, sorry, (laughs) that's page 474. Riches are meaningless. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes upon them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labour and that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain, since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink, and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun, during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God, gave, when God gives a ma- any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Six years ago, Gina Reinhardt became a billionaire for the first time. Uh, $1,800 million uh, she was worth, and uh, at the time that made her the eighth richest person in Australia. That's a lot of money, isn't it? And uh, how would you feel about that? Do you reckon... $1,800 million would be okay to live on? Would you do all right on that amount? No? Lillian's Lillian's not so sure. Uh, You'd you'd rather a bit more, would you, Lil? Is that what you're saying? Oh, you you meant to go, yes, yes. Well, uh, Gina's wealth uh, since that time has now increased substantially. Uh, It's now valued at $29 billion. That's $29,000 million which makes her the richest person in Australia and also the richest woman in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to wrap my mind around those kind of dollar values, don't you? I'm a simple person. I like to break it down to bite-sized chunks. I can understand that. So uh, here's my attempt to do so. Think for a moment, you don't have to say this out aloud, but uh, think about how much money you earn in a week. 
Well, uh, Gina earns around $364 million every week. Aura, $52 million a day, or $2 million an hour, or $600 per second. And uh, if my calculations are even vaguely correct, that means that since I started talking about a minute and a half ago, she's earned another $54,000, which uh, for a lot of people, that's kind of what uh, we earn in about a year. Is that right? So I wonder how happy she is. I wonder how satisfied and how fulfilled Gina's feeling. Or would she like to have some more? It's that uh, connection between uh, wealth and meaning and fulfilment that the, uh, the teacher in Ecclesiastes has been uh, f- uh, helping us to wrestle with uh, in this book that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And we've seen that over the last few weeks, haven't we? Is this the man who's referred to as the teacher who Sounds a lot like Solomon, but he's never actually identified as being Solomon, has challenged us to press the pause button on life, to uh, take a step back and to ask the big questions about the things which we tend to value. And he's taken some of the things which we tend to value and he's held them up to us and he's fired questions at them. Uh, Things such as possessions, things such as pleasure. Uh, even uh, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's got us to critique our thinking about knowledge and wisdom. Where do these things lead? Ultimately, how meaningful are they? Now, in chapter 5, verses 8 uh, through to 17, if you might want to have that open in your Bibles in front of you, by the way, in chapter 5, on page 474, Uh, The teacher studied the world in which he lived and he lived probably around around 3,000 years ago and he made some observations about wealth. And I want us today to just look at the observations that he made about wealth, to uh, think about our own world and our own lives and whether or not those observations stand true today and where that leaves us. So let's have a look at some of those observations. First of all, in verses 8 through to 11, he observed that there are some people who never have enough money. Poor people. Uh, He says that poor people are oppressed. Do you see that in verses 8 to 11? The poor, he observed, are oppressed. And he observed how things tended to operate in his world, that... uh, uh, you've, you've got like this societies like this pyramid, and down at the bottom of the pyramid, you've got all of the pool. For them, is uh, people who are in positions above them, and in top, on top of them, are people in positions above them, and it all kind of uh, leads up to the king, who kind of has power and authority over it all. And uh, at the bottom of it are the poor, and the poor are often oppressed. Now, there's no surprises there, is there? I mean, especially if you look back at chapter 4, verse 4, where he says that he's observed that so much of what we, uh, of what we achieve, uh, so much of what we work for, uh, springs out of our envy. Uh, we see what other people have, and suddenly we're not content with our own situation in life. You ever notice that? 
You go to someone else's place and theirs is more beautiful than yours and suddenly you go back to yours and no, it doesn't look so crash hot, you know. And so much of what we live for, uh, achieve, he says, springs from our envy. And so we, uh, we put our efforts into our work, into uh, gaining more, achieving more, not in order to be generous to others, as the scriptures say that we should, but rather for our own benefit. And in that process... Uh, people get oppressed. There's no surprises there. But what may surprise some people is that having more money does not necessarily bring more satisfaction. Although I guess it depends on how much you've got, doesn't it? Um, There are some Australian uh, academics who uh, think about this kind of stuff and they've done some research, they've surveyed people and Find out, found out about people's income levels and how much satisfaction they're getting in life and they put out a thing called the Australian Wellbeing Index and uh, in that uh, report uh, they came up with something which I think stands to reason and that is that uh, if you're really dirt poor then having a bit of extra money does increase your happiness because it's kind of better to have food in your tummy and a roof over your head than not having those things. But uh, what they discovered is that the, the richer people become, the less satisfaction they derive from greater wealth. I guess the economists would call that diminishing returns to scale. The more you've got of something, the less the incremental benefit and appreciation that you have uh, as that wealth increases. Now, they've probably spent a lot of time and effort and money doing that kind of survey, but they really should have just read Ecclesiastes, shouldn't they? Because it's kind of what the the teacher observed, if you have a look at uh, verse 10, where he says there that whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. I've asked this question before, I'll ask it again. How much money does it take to satisfy? Just a little bit more. Now, if you were the richest person in Australia, do you think you would be satisfied because of your wealth? Would that bring you satisfaction? Well, Gina's not very satisfied. I don't know if you've been reading the press lately, um, but uh, she wants to get richer. And because of her coal and iron ore uh, assets, uh, those businesses are forecast now to be raking in $10 billion profit per year, which means that she's now likely to overtake the richest people in the world. Um, There's that Mexican magnate, I forget his name, and there's Bill Gates. Uh, She's on target, particularly because she owns... 100% of her company, she's on target to overtake those people and to become the richest person in the whole world. In fact, she's on target to become the richest person in history uh, in a number, uh, if we value that by numbers, because she's on target to become the first person ever to be valued at $100 billion. You think she'll be satisfied? Well, in verse 10, you know what? Whoever loves money never has money enough. 
now of course it's not always the money that's the key issue sometimes it's the it's the what drives is the thing that the money brings it's the the status the prestige and the power there's another issue and that is that in verse 12 not only does the person who loves money never have enough money there's something else that they never have enough of what is it they never have enough sleep and I guess it's hard to rest at night when you're constantly worried about fluctuations in the exchange rate or business deals that may, may multiply your wealth or may drive you out of business verses 13 and 14 have a look verse 13 I've seen a grievous evil under the sun wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son there is nothing left for him you work hard all your life you build up your little empire and then the stock market takes a massive crash and you lose it all depressing isn't it but it gets worse it gets worse because not only do the rich fail or those who uh, who love money not only do they fail to find satisfaction and peace in their wealth uh, in verses 15 through to 17 there is an even bigger problem that they have and that is the problem of mortality verse 15 naked a man comes from his mother's womb and as he comes so he departs He takes nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration and affliction and anger. Death is the rude reality that interrupts and destroys our plans for life. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are. I used to visit an elderly man here in Port Macquarie who was rich. The reason I used to visit him on a, every couple of months or so was because uh, I didn't want him to die without knowing the Lord as his saviour, especially because he had a church connection. And one day, as I was sitting by his bedside out on his nurse, at his nursing home, uh, he said something to me which I haven't forgotten. He said to me, Scott, through my lifetime, I built my own business empire. And from what I understand from others, that is absolutely true. He did. He said, I built it myself, my own empire. And now, they have just taken away my right to sign a cheque. You know what he was feeling? He was sensing, he was coming to grips with the fact that he was losing the grip. That uh, the reality that what he had invested his life into was now slipping away from him. Sometime later at his funeral, I committed his body, earth to earth, 
ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's what it amounts to. Naked a man comes from the womb, and naked he departs, and death does not discriminate. Uh, later on in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 7, verse 2, uh, the, the teacher says, you know what, it's actually better to go to... Um, it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. Uh, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting because guess what? Death is the destiny of every man and the living should take that to heart. There's a lesson to be learnt there because we often don't actually think too much about that day of our death and what that means. But it's the one thing which we all share in common and we don't know when it'll happen, do we? Uh, we're not bulletproof. Uh, Friday afternoon, three o'clock, I was here uh, writing this talk when the phone rang and I was told that a dear friend had just died. Uh, not an elderly person. Um, a mum, four kids, two of them under the age of ten married to a very close friend. There'd been no health problems. Uh, life was going along swimmingly. Uh, no difficulties, just an ordinary, everyday day. Uh, she complained to her husband that uh, she was having a pain in her back. Fifteen minutes later, he was holding her corpse. Uh, we were due this Wednesday night, uh, her husband and myself, to have dinner together in a restaurant in Sydney uh, to talk about um, catch up on life, uh, to share about how our kids are going, how our wives are going. Instead, I'll be attending her funeral in the next week or so. You know what? Death is the destiny of every man. And we do not know the day of our passing. Fortunately, or thankfully, she was a lady who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, can I say that if you're a person who hasn't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, that maybe it's something that you've been putting off, don't put it off. Don't wait until next month or next year. Uh, don't wait till you're tired because you do not know the day of your passing. You do not know if you'll arrive home from church today or if you'll wake up tomorrow morning. Don't delay. And you see, even if you do uh, live through to a ripe old age, that everything that uh, you've earned, everything that you've built in a physical, tangible sense, it doesn't matter if you are the richest person in the world. You can take how much of it with you? None of it. None of it. And so this is what Ecclesi the teacher here is trying to impress upon us. And he comes to some conclusions. And his conclusion in verse 17 is, it's pretty gloomy that in verse 17 he says, it's all darkness and frustration and affliction and anger. But then in verses 18 through to 20, he settles down 
and he tries to make some sense of it. Have a look at verse 18. He says, Then I realise that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, accept his lot and be happy in his work. This is a gift from God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Now, there are some important truths from the book of Genesis that we, uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, that are actually embedded into what he's saying there. And it's in stark contrast to a lot of the other stuff in Ecclesiastes. And the first thing, of course, is that there is a God. Uh, and that he, God is the one who is the giver of life. And secondly, that we live under the curse of the fall. Um, we see that in two ways. Because firstly, it means that our labour is toilsome. You see that? That's the result of the fall. That's part of the curse of the fall. And the second thing is that our days are numbered. Again, that's the part of the result of the curse of the fall. And so what he's saying is that within that framework, within that context of life, he's saying, well, let's just accept the things that we have as being a gift from God. Don't hold on to them too tightly and let's just eat and drink and try to enjoy life knowing that it will come to an end one day. And that's it. That's his conclusion. What do you think of that conclusion? What sort of relief does it bring to you? Shallow, limited kind of relief, perhaps? Short-term relief? Doesn't actually address the real issues? And you see, God's purpose here is not to relieve us, but to stir our hearts and to provoke us. Um, as we saw last week uh, in chapter 3, that God has set eternity in our hearts. Remember that? I was interested, I was reading an article in The Punch. The Punch is a website that's owned by Rupert Murdoch, uh, of all people, and uh, the author of this article uh, was, is fascinated by one question. It's fa he's fascinated by what ordinary people think will happen to them after they die. And uh, so he asks people that question whenever he gets the opportunity at parties or in taxi rides or whatever. And the question he asks is this. He says to people, one second after you die, where do you think you will be? And he says that most people say, well, don't know. Probably in heaven, in a better place. And he says, I'm actually very intrigued by this because of the importance of that particular issue and the vagueness of the way that people think about it. There's all sorts of issues and decisions that we make on an every day. Uh, and other decisions in life, make decisions about where to live, whether to buy a house, whether to rent a house, what uh, school to send our kids to, whether we go private, whether we go public, uh, what job that we should take, uh, decisions like, uh, important decisions like whether you order a latte or a flat white, 
You know, we're pretty clear on those kind of decisions, aren't we? But this issue about uh, what actually happens to you as a being after you die, we're vague about. And we often don't even think it's worthwhile finding out about. I'm intrigued because from time to time, uh, even in churches, I've met people who claim to believe in God, and I don't doubt that, but who tell me that they don't know what happens to them after death. And one lady said to me, he's going to church all life, and she said, we don't know what happens after we die. We can't know. And, and so the view is, well, you just live your life well. Believe in God, go to church, uh, work hard, raise your family, own your own home and enjoy what you can. As if the Bible ends at Ecclesiastes, which, by the way, it doesn't. The Bible ends with Jesus. I want to get, to, want to get you to think about Jesus for a few moments because... It's a little bit like the church in Corinth that Paul wrote to. If you want to turn in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for a moment, on page 815, it does seem that in the Corinthian congregation that there were people who for some reason were a little bit unsure about what happens after you die. In fact, they were more than just a little bit unsure about what happens after you die. Uh, there were people who were denying that there is such a thing as a resurrection. Um, you have a look at uh, verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and guess what? So is your faith. There's no point to the whole thing. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then, then maybe this is all that there is to life. These three score and ten years, or however many days the Lord chooses to give to you. So how should we live? Well, Paul says in verse 32... If Christ has not been raised, then let us just eat and drink and just keep on living as we are. Better still, live it up. Do life to the max. Cram in whatever you can in these few short days. Just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Who does Paul sound like at that point? He sounds like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, doesn't he? <laughs> except for one thing. And it's what we find in verse 20. In verse 20, Paul says, But but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul goes on to say that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely critical to life to existence. The resurrection of Jesus in verse 54 means that death has been swallowed up in victory. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But thanks be to God because he's given us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus means that sin has been paid for. And it means that for those who put their trust in Christ and his death on their behalf, for those who put their trust in Christ awaits an eternity spent with God. For those who do not put their trust in Christ awaits an eternity spent without God. So people need to put their trust in Christ, don't they? That's what they need to do. And how can they do that unless people tell them about Christ? You and I are involved in doing that work. You see, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but Ecclesiastes has kept on impressing upon us that all of our labour to acquire wealth and possessions, uh, if that's what it's about, then it's ultimately in vain. Not a bad thing to have possessions and money, by the way, and we should glorify God in our work. Not saying that. But all of our labour, all of our wealth, all of our possessions is ultimately in vain. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 58, Paul, talking not to pastors, but talking to ordinary Christians, uh, everyday Christians, in verse 58, he says this, he says that, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you and always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. So what does it mean to labour in the Lord? Well, at the very least, it must involve helping people to put their trust in Christ and helping people to keep on trusting in Christ. Praying for people. Praying for our family and our friends who do not know Jesus and who are headed for a Christless eternity. Praying that God would open up their hearts, praying that there would be an opportunity to share with them, praying that they would trust in Jesus. Praying for each other in our ministries, praying for pastors, praying for missionaries, praying for one another as we seek to reach others for the Lord gathering together on Sundays and other times during the week. That's part of our work for the Lord, isn't it? Uh, because as we gather together, we're encouraging each other to keep on trusting in Christ, to keep on putting him first. Sometimes I think we perhaps don't even realise that the very fact that we're here is an encouragement to others, a benefit to each other. You may feel that sometimes you don't say very much, or, but just being here, just being together, means it is an encouragement to others. And of course, the work of the Lord will involve speaking to people about Jesus, probably the opportunity to do so, and being bold in actually saying a word about Christ and saying a word about the gospel 
and even challenging people, taking the Ecclesiastes approach that we talked about last week, of helping them to think through the meaninglessness of some of the things which we fill our lives with. And as we do that, we are building up treasures which even the richest people in Australia, the richest people in the world, cannot wrap their heads around. We are building up treasures which will never perish or spoil or fade. We are building up treasures which no stock market crash is going to destroy, which no business deal is going to liquidate. We are building up treasures which will last for eternity. And the treasures, of course, are the treasures of seeing others, men and women and boys and girls, for whom we have shared the gospel, for whom we've prayed for, actually being with Christ, being with God for all of eternity. So we need to ask the question then, therefore, don't we, of do we actually treasure that? Do we see how incredibly precious that is? And are we involved in doing that work of the Lord that is never in vain? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for uh, the insight of the teacher as he uh, penetrates the falsehood of his own world and exposes it for us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, we would uh, be people who uh, see where true treasure treasure actually is and uh, that you would be pleased to work in and through us to do your work that is never in vain. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.